Hello and welcome to This Week, a podcast that brings you conversations about Africa in the news, from pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious in all corners of Africa. We bring you controversial news and themes with a fresh, educational, informative and diverse perspective and telling long-standing beliefs and ways of thinking and doing things. My name is Violet and I'll be your host for today. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts and more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesdays. And finally, join our Discord community to continue the conversation. Hi, everybody. It's good to see you today. Hi. Great to see you too, Violet. <laughs> Ghana, I like your shirt. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm being great. Fully ready for the conversation today. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that indeed. And I would like to get to you right away with a quiz question since you are ready for the conversation. I suspected that. So located in the Horn of Africa, this country has been incessantly riddled with insecurities and civil wars and is historically gender conservative. But finally, this country has a female candidate running for president. Which country is this? Is it Ethiopia? Mm, not quite. Anybody want to help Ghana out? Oh, Somalia. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. The answer is Somalia. So her name is Fauzia Yusuf Haji Adam, a mm. lawmaker who says it's time for a woman's touch and on Tuesday announced her candidacy for president. But getting enough support from Somalia's lawmakers, the vast majority of whom are men, is going to be a challenge. However, she says that it will bring a new lease of life to the country. And if elected, she's going to prioritize security, economic empowerment and education. Because according to her, her male counterparts have failed to do so. Let's get into the conversation, Peter. What's on your mind today? There are a lot of things on my mind, but I want to start off first by saying July 18th in particular is Mandela Day. It's a day to celebrate the legacy of Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa and freedom fighter. So people in South Africa on July 18th take some time away to do public service, to do some charitable work, things of this nature in remembrance of his legacy as well as the time that he spent in prison in the context of the struggle for liberation of South Africa. So you can also celebrate that. That's been on my mind. But also what's been on my mind is other events that have been going on in South Africa. That is the protests that have been taking place, as well as the associated violence and looting with the jailing of the former president, another former president, in this case, Jacob Zuma, for contempt of court. And I just want to be really clear here at the outset that this jailing of Jacob Zuma has nothing to do with the corruption allegations directly, right? Indirectly, it does. As we've mentioned on a previous show, he's being investigated, multiple investigations related to his time in office in particular. But this charge and the reason he's in prison is for failing to appear in front of the court. It's a, a contempt of court charge. Nick carried just over a year's sentence. He is now reported to the police and to prison now. And in response to that, there have been some protests, right? At first, some of these protests were clearly about the jailing of Jacob Zuma. But in recent days, as we've seen, the protests have gotten significantly violent. So I'm going to give you some numbers. That, that is as of the time of our show here. It is being reported that about 200 people have died and about 2,500 have been arrested. It is also estimated 
that at least a billion dollars of goods have been looted at several hundred different retail stores across the country. And I think this violence makes us think, obviously, of what's causing it. And there are a lot of theories. One theory is that these protests are about, you know, creating enough chaos in certain parts of South Africa that it will lead the courts or the government to rethink the jailing of Jacob Zuma. That's one set of mm -hmm. arguments that are out there. Another set of arguments are saying, well, this is really perpetrated by people around Jacob Zuma, as well as the security sector, which he supported, or some elements of the security sector that he supported. In fact, while he was in power, there were accusations that he created a parallel security apparatus under his rulership. And then we have a whole nother set of explanations that talk about the criminality and how this was perhaps pre-planned by criminals to take advantage of a permissive situation to not only protest, but mainly to loot these stores. And I've given you the figures before. So we're still trying to figure out what's behind the protests. But I'll say one thing here, and I'm curious to hear what other people think, which is that South Africa has always had this concern with insecurity, right? And security sector and the state in general have not been viewed favorably by many South Africans. For example, 41% do not trust the police at all, and 25%, according to Afrobarometer, the round seven survey that was done in 2018, say they trust the police just a little. So there's a lack of trust in the security sector. There's a general feeling of insecurity in the country, and this adds to that situation there. So I'm curious what everyone thinks, but that has been the big news story this week, and it's certainly been on my mind. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate situation. Oppressed people in the society, marginalized people in the society, people that obviously fell victim of his various, you know, mismanagement, leadership insensitivity to the plight of the people, went rioting in defense of this individual. That says a lot. And that means a lot of work needs to be done retooling the mindset of the people that demonstrated. Because it should have been the other way around, in a logical sense, that somebody who possibly mismanaged the country on several occasions, being jailed for content of the court, people should be happy and demand for more. But from the stories we've read, and from the narrative of Peter, what is evident is that it can be adduced that the demonstration was in part fueled by the jailing of Jacob Zuma. And that calls to question what we need to do on the side of the marginalized, on the side of the victim of these corrupt leaders, so that their victimhood will be used to strengthen the country, will be used to demand for good governance, rather than being used to advance, you know, governance in the country. And we have the same experience in Nigeria, whereby when somebody is from a particular tribe, is from a particular part of the country, when such individuals are jailed, either for content of thought or for corrupt activities, their people will rise in their defense. And I think this is one That's of the major development challenges. You raise very interesting points. I would like to just prod a little bit more into the first point that you made about the people who are being oppressed or maybe stolen from by these government officials being happy that they're being held accountable instead somehow in a way they are rising up against the imprisonment or retribution that's coming to these leaders. And I'm just curious to know, does this say anything about people? Do they recognize it the same way that we think they should, or is there something else to it? 
I watched a couple of the news reporting that came out of South Africa and a lot of reporting is still being done. And some of the people mm-hmm. were interviewed asking them, why are you doing this? Are you in support of Jacob Zuma? But a lot of people say they didn't even care about Jacob Zuma. For them, it was just an opportunity to go get food because they are struggling. They don't have food. They need to feed their kids. And so that, again, brings us back to what Peter said. There are so many theories to this story, and there are different angles from which we can look at this. But one thing which is very evident about South Africa is inequality. South Africa is the worst levels of inequalities in the world. And uh, we can say that it's about Zuma, it's about discipline, it's about all of that. I suppose all of these in some way are valid, but the systematic issues that exist, that's the very thing that actually causing people to go out and do these things. Let me just also mention that the ruling party, the African National Congress, They've been ruling since South Africa's independence in 1994. And they came out with so many promises of freedom, of prosperity for all people. But what you see is that the ruling class are the ones that are enriching themselves, that the ones that are leading prosperous lives. But the divide, the average person, education is a mess. And so, again, for me, these systematic issues have to be dealt with before we even succeed on the security front, on a political front. We can't continue to use inequalities to rationalize the thing. I want to accept this because look at these people that have been looted. They may not be part of the government. And this is not the first time that, you know, incidences, various related incidences would lead to looting. And we've not been bold enough to come out and say, we got to put a stop to those. Being in a state of poverty is not a reason to be a criminal. Being in a state of poverty is not a reason for you to be burning down people's investments. Okay, let me say I totally agree with you on that. The fact that we bring up inequality doesn't mean it justifies the looting. And if you're following what's happening, people are being jailed, people are being arrested, the police are going into the homes and getting some of the staff back. There is absolutely no excuse on that. But we have to address the motivation that even leads people to get there. While we discipline, we hold people accountable, people are hungry, they have real issues, we need to address both. I get you, I understand. Looting is not justified for that, for sure. But we also have to understand that, as Gloria has said, that the underlying issues, the inequality, like the fact that people are hungry. And also we have to understand that there is a global pandemic that has affected economic activities all over the world. Jobs has been lost. I recently watched a news clip about South Africa, about students talking about the fact that they are hungry. They go to school hungry because the jobs that they were doing before COVID is no more there. They have to provide for themselves. They have to provide for their families as well. So there's a lot of economic toll. But as Gloria has said, I think the ANC leaders has failed the people. You know, if they have been in power since South Africa gained independence, what are some of the significant change that has taken place in South Africa for the people? The people are angry. And we also have to understand that this is not the first time this thing has happened. The leadership should have prompted that this economic concern that the people are raising, but they didn't do much about it. So when the opportunity rise for them to go to the extreme using Jacob Zuma arrest as an excuse, they did it and they did it horribly. If they do not address the economic inequality, they do not address the real issue that people are facing, more of these are going to occur. There's also been a rise in vigilantism and people trying to get up and protect their property. And I would like to get back to Peter 
since you're the one telling us about this story, do you have any insights into what's happening right now in terms of people rising up from the same communities to protect the communities that are being looted or are under the risk of being looted? Just building off of what we've all said and, and talking about the end of apartheid and the promises of the South African state. For those of you who don't know mm -hmm. in our audience, the South African constitution has a positive rights approach to citizenship. It says there are certain things as a citizen of this country you have a right to, right to clean water, uh, right to housing, right to these basic goods. And I, I would also argue a right to security as well. Obviously, these positive rights are there in response to the apartheid area where there were extreme levels of inequality. But as Gloria mm -hmm. said before, we're some years after apartheid now and the beginning of independent South Africa, but this inequality still persists. The state itself hasn't procured these public goods to people. It hasn't procured the security it suggested that it would. It hasn't procured these pieces. So what happens? It falls on the individual, right? Falls on the individual to provide for their security. It falls on the individual to deal with housing. It falls on the individual to deal with all of these different things that are basic necessities for individuals in a country where the inequality level is so high. So I think the connection here between the vigilantism that we see, right? And it's both serious vigilantism, like people defending themselves in a more militaristic sense. And it goes to also more comical forms of, I guess you couldn't call that vigilantism, but defending their stores. You could see in that one instance that people were putting down cooking oil in front of their stores so that people couldn't loot the stores because when they got closer, they would slip and they would fall, right? People are procuring this for themselves, on behalf of themselves. It just serves to highlight the fact that there are significant gaps in what the state should be doing to protect people. But again, as we've talked about, it's just more than protecting people, but it's dealing with the long-run structural economic inequalities that are there as well. And now you could argue, and I'm, I'm sure Ghana is going to present this point, that you know people are too entitled to this, that this is somehow a, it gives them a sense of entitlement, these rights. But I, I would just caution on that point, because citizenship itself, being a citizen of anywhere, should come with it benefits of citizenship. And if you're not getting in those benefits, then you're not going to feel like you're a citizen. You'll be a citizen in name only, but you will not receive the benefits of contributing to that society. So from South Africans' perspective, many have given to this country or many are contributing. But the question is, what are they getting in return? Or if they are citizens mm -hmm. after the end of apartheid, what are the signifying factors that show that they are included in that citizen body? And I think the state plays a fundamental role in this, and we can see the gaps of the state in this instance. One thing that I thought of about this vigilantism is this. When you look at most of the people at the receiving end of these looting, uh, a lot of them are foreigners and they've been helpless for a long time. This is not the first time it's happening mm. in South Africa. A lot of them are Nigerians, a lot of them are from other South African countries. And for the most part, these are the victims whenever there is an opportunity for this set of individuals to go rampage. And that is why they have to stand up to defend mm -hmm. themselves. And they have to protect their businesses. And this is another dimension to it. And that is why we need to look at it from who are the victims as well. And why is it that the victims are rising up, coming together to fight against it? And this comes back to this conversation. If there is a problem of inequality, it is not these foreign business owners that are responsible for this. It's the politicians, the political leadership of the ANC, 
Are they taking on the political leadership of the ANC? Are they converting this into political capital to change the leadership? If that is not happening, they are part of the crisis. The people at the core of the looting, that means they are part of the crisis because they are using a wrong therapy to address the root cause of the problem. If a politician is responsible for this madness, if the ANC is responsible for this madness, take on ANC leadership, change them, convert your frustration and aggression into political tool enough to bring about radical change in the face of the leadership in the country. But situation whereby the only thing you can do is to loot other people's investment, then there's a big problem here. And this comes back to the issue of black entitlement in South Africa, an argument that I've spoken about this in different forums. And the thing about black entitlement is this, it prevents our people from asking questions regarding what do I need to do as an individual differently in order to change my narrative. Black entitlement is something that came about after the fight against apartheid. During apartheid, we blame everything rightly on majority of the white folks. And I was right. But we've since left apartheid. Of course, a lot of things in South Africa today still has to do with apartheid. But the fact is that we can't continue to blame the white for every injustice in the country. The fact is that this sense of entitlement is preventing our people from asking the question, what do I need to do differently? And part of what do I need to do differently is the question, do I need to be looting people's businesses? Ghana, you raise very interesting points there about black entitlement. But I would like to throw this back to Peter. What are your thoughts on Ghana's opinion about black entitlement, particularly in South Africa? Well, this argument's been around for a long time. There was actually an op-ed some time ago, I believe 2014, by Stephen Grutz mm -hmm. that made similar arguments, pointing to a lot of narratives that are familiar in other countries, including the United States, a sense of self-sufficiency, the self-made person, all of these kind of things. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of arguments, <laughs> right? But I think these arguments do not reflect the real reality of South Africa, which is a reality, coming back to what Gloria said earlier, of extreme levels of inequality. South Africa is not the most unequal country in the world, but it's certainly within the top 10. There are other countries that are equally as unequal as South Africa. And I think it fails to talk about the conditions that provide opportunities for people to be able to make a living for themselves. A lot of those opportunities are very, very limited in some pockets. And so I think it's not a sense of entitlement of getting this or that, but I think it's a, a citizenship entitlement, as I've alluded to earlier. People do have the right to say, as a citizen, I am entitled to these citizen benefits, particularly if other citizens in your country have those benefits without even asking for them. Those are real entitlements right there. So I don't buy the argument, and many in South Africa <laughs> have not bought this argument. But I do take one point that Ghana says, although I'd put it in a slightly different way. I will say that some of the frustrations that people have should be with the ruling party to some degree. They have been in power since independence. Sometimes the ANC is more towards redistribution. Some ends they've sort of made bargain with capital and powerful interest within the country. That's a good debate to have. I think the one thing that we haven't mentioned is what is the alternative for South Africans when it comes to voting and to expressing these? And I think 
that's another area of potential frustration. So you have the ANC, the dominant party, but we do have the Economic Freedom Fighters Party that's coming up in recent years. Then we have the other main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance Party. I think the problem that many Black South Africans have with the DA party is that certain voices within the DA party, some of which who are quite dominant, have used language and have embraced policies that have not been as progressive as need to be. And some leaders of the party have used overtly racist language, which is concerning. So those are some of the concerns. So I take that point that perhaps there needs to be advocacy within the party and there needs to be an option or a vehicle for this. But I think this general argument of black entitlement, so to speak, is very misfounded. And on that note, we will have to continue this on Discord. Ghana, hold your horses. So I know <laughs> I'd like to get to Eva. Eva, what's on your mind? So what is on my mind for this week has to do with cybersecurity and how prepared African countries are when it comes to state-backed or state-sponsored cyber attacks. We've seen in the news in recent years that U.S. and other Western countries and developed countries have been affected by cyber attack. And the most recent one has to do with the colonial pipeline that actually affected people in the southeast of the United States. There was shortage of supply of gas and people were rushing to make sure that they have enough gas for the weekend. There is a recent article by Nathaniel Allen and Noel van der Vak calling from the Brooklyn Institution. Um, and they were talking about how African states can tackle cyber threats. And they outlined very important points which we have to take advantage of. They were talking about the fact that because of low internet penetration, African countries have not been exposed to state-sponsored cyber attack in recent years. The one challenge that we had was when China was eavesdropping on information from the African Union, which came out and was a very serious issue. When they are building their technological capacity, they depend on foreign states to help them build it. And China is like the major dominant when it comes to helping African countries build their technological capacity, which also raised an important issue that they spoke about, because they spoke about the fact that about 70% of the 4G base stations have been built by Huawei, which is a Chinese telecommunication company for most African countries. And one of the issues is that this can raise compromises because one, if Huawei decide to shut it down, then most African countries will not have access to the kind of technological system they need. So we have to think about building our own local capacity. We have to also think about international cooperation and also diversifying in terms of our foreign actors when it comes to helping us build those capacity. We don't have to rely just on, say, China to help us build it because we also have to think about other foreign actors that can help. In doing so, we are able to also build our local capacity so that we can also manage our own internet base. Because the truth of the matter is that as more and more people get access to the internet, we are going to be susceptible to cyber attack in the near future. That is absolutely true. And I think one of the things that you reflected on there is this issue of the big infrastructural questions, right? Of servers yeah. and things like that. We can also think of what we call endpoints. Those are our user gadgets as well. And I'm sure we all have friends that say, well, you know, I don't have access to the recent version of Windows or I don't want to spend the money to make all the downloads or the security updates to my computer. And so this is another what we call vector for some of these security threats. So they can come in through their devices. So some people are using even devices 
that run on Windows 7. And Windows 7, I believe, is not supported anymore. They've moved over to Windows 10 and coming out in just a, mm -hmm. a few months is Windows 11 with some new security features as well. And then Windows 10 will phase out, I think, in mid 2020, somewhere thereabouts. So I think it's a question also of the major infrastructure there who's building it and who's managing it, but it's also the support that's going to need to be given to individual people or companies themselves, their individual workers that are accessing these different softwares and, and different what we call endpoints as well. So I think that's also an issue here. When I look at this issue, I look at mm. it from what are we doing domestically in different African countries to build our capacity on issues related to cybersecurity. And this comes back to our educational system. So how much of attention is given to cybersecurity in our tertiary educational system? Do we have government-sponsored departments that do all forms of research needed to build domestic capacity in the area of cybersecurity? And related to that is this, there are a good number of countries in Africa that sense to want to study the abroad. And one of the questions I've always asked is that, what are the priority issues, the priority basis of sending people to study abroad? If I'm going to give scholarship for people to study abroad, as the president of a particular country, I will look at my major development priority issues. And I think one of those issues that should be informing their decision about sending people abroad is capacity building in the area of cybersecurity. And I will privilege those who want to acquire this particular form of knowledge, send them mm -hmm. to the best of universities abroad, and then get them back home to build that capacity. Because the problem is when it comes to security matter, those components of it that are beyond your reach are your biggest failing point. Because when you say you want to collaborate with this, you want to collaborate with that, China is coming in to assist us in this area. The biggest, weakest point of collaboration is China itself, our reliance on China. And the more we move away on reliance on foreign countries, the better we are in terms of having a continent, different countries in Africa that are ready in the area of cybersecurity. Are we doing anything reasonable in this area? I don't want to believe that. So there is a need for Africa to have a priority focus on building local capacity through our local universities and by sending people on bonded scholarship to study abroad and return home and build a capacity. And finally, that capacity needs to be domiciled within the military because the military is an extension of the security of a country. And I don't think there's a lot of attention giving to that within the current budgetary allocation of military in different African countries. If the military is able to do this, and then that will go a long way to further strengthen African capability and readiness. So I want to raise this question. Eva mentioned China's involvement in building some of the telecommunications and, and security infrastructure. And we oftentimes hear this concern. It's echoed in other countries around the world. But I'm curious, from your perspective, Eva and Ghana, what is the main concern with China taking a role 
in these areas? What is the concern that you have with that as opposed to, <laughs> say, Italy getting involved or France getting involved in telecommunications? I'm curious if you could articulate that. The concern is the fact that about 70% of your 4G base station is built by one company is very concerning. So let's say that something happened to this company. Your whole internet or your whole security or telecommunication is going to go off. We have to think strategically here. And also, this is the information of millions of Africans in the hands of just one company monitoring it all taking care of it. For me, the concern has to do with the fact that how is even the information shared? Do African countries have access to the majority of the information that is being collected by this company? What is going on there? And also when this Chinese company is building their telecommunication and also their cybersecurity for them, are they training local people? And as Ghana said, are we actually mm -hmm. investing in local capacity so that when they finish building it, we just take over. And also we ensure that anything that is linked to them is cut off. If you're a country yes. and you allow a foreign power to get access to major chunk of your information system, I'm sorry, this is not going to end well. That is how I feel. I want to come back to the point that answering Peter's question, what Eva said, that the concern is here, you're giving Chinese access to a vast part of your infrastructure. They control so much of it. And so if anything yeah. were to happen, you are in danger because you lose so much of mm. your critical infrastructure. They have access to all of that. And the other thing is you don't want the Chinese to be completely in charge of everything at the point where you locally have absolutely no capacity to even maintain some of those infrastructure. The problem is they come in, they train, are there skills being transferred? Are they training people on the ground so that they can continue maintaining this infrastructure? Again, it comes back to capacity building locally. You see that happening. That's what other countries are doing. The U.S. has, I don't know how many programs that they have for cybersecurity. They do that at high school level, at college level, in IT companies, at different levels. They make sure that they have resources that they put aside to make sure that they are training their own people in this area. And we should start thinking in that direction as well. There's no problem with receiving help from outside, but we should make sure that we are training our own. And we don't have to wait when we're able to do so on a very large scale. We can start thinking security at a very smaller scale and encouraging private companies as well, NGOs, small departments within the government to start thinking in that line. And I completely agree with the idea that Ghana just brought up of, if you're going to give scholarship, you prioritize the area of security, especially as far as it concerns critical infrastructure. It's possible. We know that it's possible even locally. Why? Because a couple of months ago, there was a story in the news that in Ghana, Russia was able to train young people in Ghana and they had the skills to spread disinformation on social media. There was a troll farm. It mm -hmm. was planted locally in the country. And so if other countries are able to train our own people where they are, we should be able to do that. <laughs> As Gloria was speaking about this, I was thinking about what Eva was saying about after they are done building the capacity for us, what's the end game? Would they be willing to completely let go of control? And in my mind, I was thinking, what are the chances that they will actually completely let control go? Because what are the chances that after I have built the system for you, I live embedded within the system 
access points that I can secretly come back to without your knowledge. So I think the idea of building capacity is really critical at this stage because then without local capacity, it's even impossible to discover these backdoors if they exist. It's not just about building capacity, though, that we've been mentioning, but it's making sure that there's also a legal system in place to protect privacy as well. Absolutely. Because, and I'm surprised that no one brought this up because this is oftentimes one of the reasons people are concerned about China getting involved in telecommunications is that they've been very supportive, as are some other countries as well, of developing what we could call the digital authoritarian infrastructure that is being exported Mm -hmm. worldwide. So I think that's also a genuine concern here. And I think it's a concern regardless of who's in control of these assets. There also needs to be a, a privacy framework that has to be put up that supports people's access to their data as well. So I think that's another thing that one could talk about on this cybersecurity front. I have one thing that I just found out that I think is very important. I think that some African countries are trying their best because recently, in somewhere in June, Senegal announced that it's going to transfer all their government data and digital platform from foreign service to their nationally data center in the hope of strengthening their own data sovereignty. And I think that is an important step that I believe that other African countries will follow very soon. Thank you so much for that, Eva. And I would like to come back to Gloria. Yes, you. So Gloria, I have a quiz question for you. This West African country is set to contract a loan of 170 million US dollars for sports infrastructure ahead of the 2023 All-African Games. Which country is this? I'll tell you up front, I don't know, but I'll guess Nigeria. Not quite. Anyone willing to help? It's Ghana. (laughs) Exactly. So the country is Ghana and the loan is meant to help finance the provision of sports infrastructure and residential facilities for the hosting and organizing of the 2023 All-Africa Games. So this loan agreement is between the government of Ghana, which is represented by the Ministry of Finance and Cal Bank Ghana Limited. So Gloria, what's on your mind today? So what's on my mind this week is, you all remember the song Jerusalem, right? There was a day we even asked Eva. Yeah, yes. And Eva promised us to show (laughs) her dance moves, but that never happened. Anyway, (laughs) we all remember the song. Very popular in 2020. It was actually a pandemic soundtrack. So many people danced to this song from all over the world. We had so many videos online. So there's a story to the song. There were two South African artists who performed that song. One was Masa Keiji and the other artist is Nomtebo Zikode. So last week, Zikode went on Twitter threatening legal action against Open Mic Production, which is the record label company that recorded that song. So her complaint is that she did not get any pay on her work on the song Jerusalem. So as I mentioned, the song was very popular. Just to give you an idea, it reached number one in Belgium, Romania, the Netherlands, South Africa, and Switzerland. And it also went triple platinum in Italy and double platinum in Spain. So obviously this song is making a lot of money. And so Hino complained, she said she hasn't gotten paid and now the situation is in the hands of her lawyers. So Master KG, who is the other artist of the song, responded to this claim also online on Twitter. So all of this is happening on Twitter. He came out and said that the agreement of Jerusalem is 50-50 between the two artists, but Zikode is now asking for 70%. And she's suggesting that Master KG gets 30%. After this statement, 
the record label company also put out now an official statement. So there are a few things that the record label company wanted to clarify in their statement. The first thing is that Master KG is the main artist on the song and Zikode is the featured artist. And when they went into studio, the two agreed that they were going to split 50-50 the earnings of this song. And then later on, when the contract was drafted, it was completed, I believe, in November of last year, the contract went out to the artist. And uh, Zikode held on before signing the contract. So there were discussions between her and the lawyers. When they came back to the record label company, she presented a different offer, a counter offer. Her offer was asking for a higher percentage than what was initially agreed. And so since then, it's been months. They've been into negotiations. And the record label company has claimed that they haven't paid anybody not even Masakeji, not Zikode, because they're still waiting for the contract to be signed. So that's where the situation mm. is. At this point, it's really hard to point a finger and say, this is the fault of this or that, because the record label company said, we cannot pay until the artists have signed. And that's the story out there. Of course, you have the fans, they will pick a side. Those that are following Masakeji are supporting him. And you have those that are following Zikode. So it's a war out there and everything is just all up in the air. There's not been a finalized solution to this situation. But I would like to point out before I hear from all of you that we know that traditionally record label companies have exploited artists, both male and female, have mm. been exploited in the past. But even women more so specifically, not just in the area of pay, but in how women are treated or are portrayed in the music and entertainment industry. And so there definitely are reasons for concern in this case, but we have to wait and receive more information in the case of Jerusalem. But it's sad. I was going through some of the comments and people rightly pointed out that it's sad to see artists that bless us with this wonderful song <laughs> fighting. This song united the world in a time of despair, but then here they are fighting. It's just very ironic. And very ironic. And the other thing I was reading about in this story is that I think Master KG is going on tour in some form and that the singer has been replaced by somebody else as part of this tour. So it sort of adds another layer to this as well. And I guess when the song is quite simple as Jerusalem is, I guess that opens it up for swapping the singers out. My concern with this whole issue is that I believe in private conversation and settling issue instead of making it public and using Twitter and Facebook, social media as your medium for you to attract or gather support from people. So first of all, I disagree with the fact that she came out to put it on Twitter, making this statement. And the other one also spoke about it. Then the record label came in. I, I disagree with that. I just feel like this thing should have been settled privately. But also, I don't know what went on in the private. I feel like probably she feel like in the private, she's not being heard. So social media has become the way for her to be heard and that an action will be taken immediately. But personally, I do not like the issue where when people have issues with other people, they just go on social media to put it there. I just feel like it's making us create a culture where we don't listen to each other, where we view social media as a tool to settle our conflicts for us, which is not the solution or the way to go. Mm, that's an interesting observation, Eva. Peter touched on the issue of tours. So all of this is still part of the conflict. So Masakeji went on tour and replaced Zikode 
in those tours and people were complaining how can you do that she's the one that sang and then he pointed out to the fact that Zikode also went on tour by herself and Master Keiji was not a part of that so it's just right now as Eva said it's just a matter of pointing fingers on social media but you did this and you did that it's really not helpful at all it's considering what this song achieved for the world during mm -hmm. a very difficult time it's very sad but I hope that there's a solution soon Absolutely. Especially when you look at the lyrics of Jerusalem, I mean, they are very hopeful, you know, talking to God, don't leave me in this world, take me to the city of Jerusalem. And I think part of the reasons for the inspiration behind this song was, you know, Shadow has been a backstage singer and she wanted to become one of the frontliners. And she sang this song with hope. It was almost like a prayer and it was answered and then to see what's become of it that's quite disheartening and I know that there's so many sentiments to this song especially given the fact that it gave the world so much hope it united countries and you know people with different tongues languages and cultures this was beautiful and now to see what's becoming of the people that gave us this music to say the least is quite heartbreaking but well, we'll keep our ears to the ground and we'll keep our eyes built away to see what happens as a result of the ongoing conversations. And with that, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Leaders of Africa's This Week. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts and more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesdays. So join our Discord community to continue the conversation and follow Leaders of Africa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram for all new and great content. And that is all for this week. Thank you. And until next time, bye.